I hope you've had a good week this week. My week has been pretty good. Got my children, got the children back from uh, from my parents. Uh, from my parents, they were visiting with them uh, for the last week, so I was finally able to go this past Wednesday, go pick them up and bring them home after it feels like they've been gone for uh, well, they've been gone for several weeks, as a matter of fact. So it's good to be reunited with them and to to be whole again. Um, and so that's that's fantastic. But it was tough getting there because driving to Alpharetta, Georgia, to my sister's house to pick up my children. I ate some fast food, and the fast food just didn't agree with me too well. And uh, I kind of suffered through that for the next day and a half, just with some, uh, just just not feeling well at all uh, throughout the night, Wednesday and early Thursday, all the way until Thursday evening. Uh, But I'll be honest with you, as poorly as I felt, and I think the culprit was fast food. I probably will not completely stay away from fast food. I might just stay away from Jack in the Box. I don't eat Jack in the Box that much. I've heard that uh, people often get sick when they eat at Jack in the Box. I heard that after the fact. So I'll probably stay away from that. But I'm going to tell you, there's, there's, there's a fast food establishment that I will probably never stay away from, and that is Chick-fil-A. I just love Chick-fil-A. And I want to talk about Chick-fil-A for just a moment by way of introduction to the sermon, because Chick-fil-A is dominating the fast food industry. Now, I understand that we have some students in here that are working, uh, working at Zaxby's. I love Zaxby's. Zaxby's is fantastic. If, uh, if, if Chick-fil-A just burned to the ground, I'd probably go to Zaxby's. But to be honest, Chick-fil-A is just the better chicken for me. And uh, Zaxby's just plays second and third fiddle to that. So uh, no offense to you at all. I just love Chick-fil-A. And you can't argue with the statistics. You can't argue with the, with the facts that have been produced about the way Chick-fil-A produces because they dominate the fast food industry. You're never gonna hear someone say, you're never gonna hear a fast food establishment say, oh goody, oh goody, Chick-fil-A is moving in next door. Oh goody, Chick-fil-A is moving down the street. No, no one's ever excited other than the patrons that Chick-fil-A is coming into town. No, Taco Bell never said, and Pizza Hut never said, and KFC never said, and Zaxby's never said, oh goody, Chick-fil-A's moving in right next door. Aren't we so very happy? No, because they know that wherever Chick-fil-A is, that's where the patrons are. And those who would have been giving their patronage to Taco Bell or giving their patronage to Zaxby's or or KFC are now going to give their patronage to Chick-fil-A because it's a better quality of food. And that's just one of the reasons that they are dominating the fast food industry. You say, well, Chick-fil-A does cost a bit more. Absolutely it does, because you're paying for quality, not just in food, but you're also paying for quality in service. And hear me, that is the key to their success. It is their food, absolutely. Their food is just better, better quality food, therefore it costs more. But the true heart of their success is their service. And that's not because this Chick-fil-A lucked out here or this Chick-fil-A uh, lucked out there and they just happened to have some good employees come and, uh, and, 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 and apply or good people come and apply to be an employee there. No, that's, that's not what happened. Chick-fil-A is setting themselves up for success by creating a criterion that will ensure a certain caliber of employee that comes and works for the establishment. And, and, and this is the key to their success. Speaking of their success, listen, listen to these statistics. 
Chick-fil-A generates more revenue per restaurant than any other fast food chain in the U.S., and it's only open six days a week. That's it. Average sales for 2016, listen to this, $4.4 million. That's compared to $1.1 million by Kentucky Fried Chicken. Far outselling the other, the other chicken, right? Chick-fil-A only has 2,100 chains in the U.S., while McDonald's has 14,100, while Taco Bell has 6,300, and KFC has 4,160. So Chick-fil-A is thousands less in, in the number of chains across the U.S. than these other, other establishments. And Chick-fil-A is, is dominating them all. They're just destroying them. And the key to the success is the service of the employees. It's the caliber of the employees. As I was thinking through this and reading and doing a little bit of research, uh, it was brought to my attention that I have a friend in Hendersonville who is a manager at the Chick-fil-A there. So I reached out to him. He's a childhood friend. So I reached out to him and asked him, as someone who hires and fires Chick-fil-A employees, as if firing ever really happens, I asked him, what do they look for in their employees? What caliber of a person do they look for? And so he said, I have something for you. And he sent me this document that he actually gives to those who are applying as kind of a uh, kind of the preliminary go-through that they have to deal with uh, upon the initial application. And this is what it says. And I want you to notice something. Before it, before it goes through a list of criteria, and here's, here's what it says at the beginning. It says, we do not require restaurant experience as a prerequisite for consideration of employment. However, highly qualified candidates to join our Chick-fil-A team must possess, among many others, the following traits to be competitive in our selection process. So if you want to work for Chick-fil-A, you don't have to have restaurant experience, fast food experience. You don't have to have that at all. But this is what you do have to have. A heart of service, honor, dignity, and respect to all. Strong interpersonal skills, professionalism, availability, punctuality, coachability, competitiveness, enthusiasm, reliability, self-motivation, organization, ability to multitask, strong ethics, well-versed humility, and eagerness to learn, must, be, uh, must have initiative, must have a sense of purpose beyond themselves, must be sincere, must have great stewardship, and must be honest. Now, I haven't applied for a fast food job, but, but I would be willing to make the assumption I would be willing to make the assumption that you're probably not going to see that set of criterion for any kind of fast food employment. I just don't think so. But you also don't see the same success in other fast food establishments like you do at Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is a, is, it's a, it's a wonder. It's a wonder. I mean, their efficiency, their success is just, it's through the roof. And it all hinges, it all hinges on their, on the service of their employees, 
I mean, they're paid to tell you that it's their pleasure, even when it's not. They're, they're, they're coached and they're trained to, to always smile, to always say it's my pleasure, and to try to make your dining experience, whether you're driving through the drive-thru or sitting, in, or sitting in the restaurant itself eating, their job is to make, it, to make it a good experience for you. Even the decoration on the wall is to be warm, welcoming, uh, and, and inviting. It's all, it's all strategic, and that's not bad. Because you know that your dining experience for the most part and my dining experience for the most part is always great at Chick-fil-A. And most of that hinges on the service of the employees. And it's not by happenstance because they're trained to be exactly what Chick-fil-A wants in order to represent Chick-fil-A rightly. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that true of any establishment that we're a part of? If you're a part of a college or anything that's uh, any kind of graduate school or undergraduate school, normally they give students a student handbook. And in that student handbook, there's a code of conduct. I was reading through Harvard's student handbook. And in order to be a Harvard man or a Harvard woman, there's a, there's a set list of criteria. And there is a code of conduct that is befitting of a Harvard gentleman or woman. Where I work at Solid Construction as a carpenter, there is a, there is a, a code of conduct. There's language that we're permitted to use. There's language that we're not permitted to use. Everything that we do and don't do is basically in the name of professionalism and in order that we might rightly represent the company in whom we identify. So, so whatever you're a part of, whether it be a family, whether it be school, whether it be a job, you represent that group to which you belong. You share in an identity. No, those groups don't define you, but you share in that identity. And you want to represent that, that establishment. You want to represent that entity, that group, that family. That, that, uh, you want to represent that well. And when it comes to living as a follower of Jesus, the rules don't suddenly change. Matter of fact, they intensify. Our responsibility as followers of Christ, our position as citizens of the kingdom of God is that we might rightly represent the one to whom we belong. We belong to God. Our identity is in him provided by the gospel. So our behavior, our conduct, our words, our thoughts, the image that we present for the world should be an image that accurately portrays the gospel. It should accurately depict or portray Christ God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And as citizens, there's a way that we should act. And this is the corner that Paul turns here in Philippians 1, 27. He begins by telling them that they are to be sure that their manner of life as Christians is worthy of the gospel. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is verse 27 of chapter 1. 
Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. We'll continue that in a moment. But Paul comes out of the gate and he says, listen, you are citizens of the kingdom of God. There's an expectation. There's a way in which you are to conduct yourself, to live, to move, and have your being. And if you do that in a right way, then you will rightly represent the kingdom to which you belong. So there's a tall order that's placed on us as believers, and that is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is not the first time that Paul says this. In Ephesians, he says to walk in a manner uh, worthy of your calling. Where have we been called to? We've been called to be citizens of the kingdom of God by God's divine grace, by God's divine election, bringing us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we have new identity in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And so we have to live out that identity to create and present an accurate picture of what the gospel is. So let me make a point of clarity. In this text, there's, Paul is saying to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, but I know that there are so many more ways to live a manner worthy of the gospel all throughout the scriptures. So we're gonna focus in on just a few points in this immediate context. We can go to any of the epistles, we can go to any of the gospels, we can see the admonishments and the exhortations of the writers, Jesus himself, and, and, and we can see that there. That's that let your light so shine before men. That's, that's a way to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We go to Ephesians, he said, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. You know, that's a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, there's all these instructions and exhortations. And anytime we follow those that are in the scriptures, we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling or we're living in a manner worthy of, of the gospel. So instead of trying to track all of those down, we're just gonna focus on this immediate context. The context happens to be the context of persecution, the context of, of hardship, because Paul is going through persecution now as he's imprisoned as he's under house arrest and he's writing to encourage them, saying, listen, you're gonna go through these things. Your call is to suffer for the sake of Christ just as I am suffering for the sake of Christ now. But don't lose heart, don't lose courage. Be fearless, be fearless, pursue Christ, represent him well and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what he does is he breaks it down into three basic exhortations. And the first one is he says to stand firm. Stand firm in verse 27, he says, let your life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Let me hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. So one way to live a life that's in a manner worthy of the gospel is to stand firm this text is not difficult. We've had some complex, difficult texts that we've, <laughs> that we've waded through before, but this is not one. And hopefully this is one that you leave and you feel encouraged. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. Standing firm means to be rooted in the promises and the realities of the gospel. This means to become firm, to become rigid, unshakable, and unmovable when it comes to the gospel specifically. This is language of war. 
as though an army was charging forward and you, and you, and you, and you stand there and you, you hold your ground, even if, even if the numbers you know, are, are, are far more than yours. If the army seems so much stronger than yours, the idea here is no matter what is coming your way, stand firm. Stand firm will rightly represent you as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because there's so many implications that comes with you being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Namely, namely, is that he fights for you. Namely, that you have been advocate with the Father who is Jesus. Namely, that you have the Holy Spirit of God who is waging war. You, you have all of these things going for you. You know, the scripture says, you know, uh, it says, um, uh, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And if God is for you, who can be against you? So this is the reality that you have, that the gospel is also, so standing firm Standing firm is resting in this reality that the Bible makes all these promises to those who are in Christ. And as a follower of Christ, one who has the identity of the gospel, the gospel has been applied to my life. It sustains me every day of my life. I can stand firm no matter what the opposition may be. And that's exactly what Paul gets to in just a moment. Listen, one of the realities of the gospel is that it has given us new identity. So live in that identity. Embrace it. Embrace it. In practice, our culture does this well. It's just misappropriated. Without being too specific for time's sake, our culture, to make a generalization, our culture, or to generalize things, our culture will take an ideology, will take a concept or a construct, and it can be very wrong. And the culture will bolster that. They will embrace it. They will even flaunt it. And the practice is good, it's just a misappropriation. Because what you don't want to flaunt is something that is not true, something that is detrimental. You don't embrace that. But when something is true, when something that is excellent and right and praiseworthy and that is from God or God himself, that's something that you can embrace. And that's something that you can flaunt in a right way. And that's something that you can live as Christians, as Christians to stand firm, it means to embrace these realities, to embrace these gospel truths and to stand for them, to flaunt them, to herald them, to let the world see them and to see the proper appropriation of these things. So here's another reality of the gospel is that it is needed every single day. You've heard me say this before, but for those that have not and for our listeners, the gospel is for the already disciple and the not yet disciple. We think of the gospel in terms of give the gospel to the lost for the change that they need, and that's absolutely true, but that's not where the gospel stops. The gospel is applied to the life of the believer every single day. We have to live in this identity that, is, that has been purchased for us by Christ. So we need the gospel truth. We need the gospel promises and the gospel realities 
to be pressed into our life every single day. And we need to, uh, we need to in turn, lean into them. Rely on them. Like a kickstand on a very heavy motorcycle, we will, we will lean in. And that gospel will be the support that holds, that holds the weight of life and that supports us. So standing firm means to be rooted in the promises and the realities of the gospel. It also means to have an unwavering allegiance to the Lord himself and to the gospel itself. So what does this look like? What does an allegiance to the gospel look like? Well, it looks like keeping the truth of the gospel intact. It looks like keeping the truth of the gospel intact. So again, you wanna show that you're standing firm? Have an unwavering allegiance to the Lord and the gospel. Keep the truth of the gospel intact. For example, there is one way to God and his name is Jesus. There's no other. You can't really truly coexist in that sense. The gospel is our reminder that in every man is a fallen nature, separated from God because of sin, and therefore he has a need of rescue, a need for being rescued. That's a gospel principle. That's a gospel reality that we cling tightly to and that we have unwavering allegiance to. And that's how we keep the gospel intact. Here it is, another way. Keep the gospel intact in this way, that by understanding and acknowledging that Jesus was more than a good teacher, he's God in the flesh, he's crucified, risen, and reigning, that he's creator and that he's sustainer, that he's eternal, the only begotten, Another way to keep the gospel intact is to recognize and, and, and affirm and hold to the fact that Jesus' atonement was sufficient for all who would believe. And by the way, I mention those because all of these things have suffered scrutiny over the years. All of these are under attack. All of these have been manipulated and changed or just outright disagreed with. So another way to show unwavering allegiance to the Lord and the gospel is by keeping the hope of the gospel a present reality for those in need and also keeping the power of the gospel in mind as the driving force behind our evangelism. It's trusting in the power of the gospel to make the difference. It's trusting in the power of the message rather the messenger. It's trusting in the, the miraculous power behind the message as opposed to to the power of the man who's bringing the message. So these are ways to stand firm and to show an unwavering allegiance to the Lord and the gospel. But standing firm can also mean to persevere. Don't give up and don't give in. Standing firm means to persevere. So there's a little more to it than just standing in one place and bowing up your chest and letting the arrows hit you and hopefully they'll bounce off or you'll survive or you'll survive the attack. But persevere, persevere means you keep pressing forward, you keep moving. And no matter what the odds look like, no matter how things are looking everywhere else, is you don't let that diminish, you don't let that take away from what your trajectory is. Listen, I understand the struggle of being the odd man out. I understand that struggle. Standing firm sometimes means that you will stand absolutely alone. But understand this, that your stance, although alone at times, 
may serve to embolden others. Someone is always watching. This is already a reality that Paul shared with us just a few verses earlier when he said that his imprisonment has served in such a way that those who were once lacking courage have now been made bold, have been emboldened. So standing alone may be necessary for someone else to stand at all. So standing firm means to persevere. It means to, to, to swear an unwavering allegiance to the Lord and the gospel. And it means to be rooted in the promises and the realities of the gospel. And this is what Paul says. This is the first of his admonishments. You want to you wanna have a life that people look at and say, that's a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. You want to know that that's the way you're living? Well, one way is to stand firm. Stand firm when the persecution comes. Stand firm when the naysayers and the scoffers and the mockers, when they stand and they hurl insults and they mock you and they make fun of you. Stand firm. Stand firm, persevere, swear allegiance to Christ and the gospel and live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then Paul moves to his second exhortation. If we continue in verse 27, he says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Listen, church, unity is the key ingredient to living a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at. When he says to strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel, he's speaking of harmony, he's speaking of unity, specifically in the local church. Paul is saying to this church, fight together against those who oppose the gospel and fight together for the faith. He says the body is stronger when all of its limbs are intact, when all of its members are functioning properly. (coughs) Excuse me. Church, it is impossible to put too high a premium on, on, on ecclesiological unity, on church unity, on proper one anothering, proper community, proper fellowship within the body of Christ. You can't place too high a premium on that, especially in the context of waging war against the opposition, waging war against darkness. We absolutely must have community fellowship and unity, harmony together in order that we might be able to stand side by side, that we might fight for the gospel and fight against those who oppose it. A boxer is most effective when his arms and his legs and his hands and his neck are all working together to outwork and outskill his opponent, right? Wars are more easily won with unified bodies. And so too, the church is more effective for the advancement of the gospel when we are unified. Paul isn't saying that unity is simply agreeing not to kill each other, but, but, but keeping to each other's side of the room. That's not what Paul is saying. And that's unfortunately what happens in a lot of churches. There's, there's a problem that takes place. And rather than actually dealing with the problem, 
rather than actually moving past moralistic responses and getting to the heart of the issue, finding the root that's producing the fruit and saying, let's eradicate this bad root or see what's going on and let's, let's get this to its proper place. Let's find true reconciliation. I don't, I don't think that happens a whole lot. Instead, what happens is people just agree to disagree or they agree just to kind of play nice. They sit on one side of the building while the other sit on the other side of the building and they just choose to tolerate each other. But oh, good gracious, wouldn't it be horrible if they actually had to mix together for anything because then the true colors will show. Why? Why? Because they, they never dealt with the issue. We've seen it here. You've probably seen it in your families. You've seen it in friendships growing up. If there's no true reconciliation, guess what? There's no true reconciliation. And there's no harmony. There's no unity. And we set ourselves up for failure when it comes time to stand side by side and fight the opposition and fight for the gospel. The issue, unity and peace are not, unity and peace are not social issues. They're not personality issues. Unity and peace are gospel issues. The issue is that the gospel is much bigger and matters much more than our petty problems and disagreements. And we really have to take ownership of that concept, that the gospel matters more than your petty problems that the gospel is more significant than whatever it is that creates disunity, whatever creates discord in the body. Paul understood this when he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter three. He deals with divisions in the church. That's what, that's what the entirety of chapter three is about. He reiterated these things when he addressed issues of division, issues of disunity in chapter 11 in the context of the Lord's Supper. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul is frustrated by the division that's amongst this body. And it's no different here. It's a major problem if the church has disunity. Because disunity is contrary to the gospel. The gospel unifies and brings peace and causes togetherness and it's in the gospel that we experience biblical one anothering so disunity and division is contra gospel it's anti gospel when we prioritize our problems we minimize the gospel and when we prioritize our problems we We place a premium on our problems and ultimately we're communicating this, that the gospel doesn't matter as much as our own petty problems. So what does harmony look like? The picture here is of two gladiators. In the text, the picture here is of two gladiators who are fighting side by side against an enemy. Not just against the enemy, but also for the gospel. So they're fighting against, but they're fighting against for a purpose. 
and that is for the gospel. They're unified in that purpose. So I think the application to us, just in a quick nutshell, is that we have to have the purpose in mind because the purpose is gonna supersede what's petty. And if we have petty problems that causes disunity, we have to keep the purpose in mind and the purpose is the advancement of the kingdom of God. Of whom we are citizens, of whom we have a obligation and responsibility to represent well and to walk in a manner worthy of that gospel, of that citizenship of that kingdom. So to exist in harmony means that as one body with one mind and one purpose, we are collectively moving together as a church for the advancement of the gospel. It means that we want another well when we need it. We encourage when we need it, affirm, exhort, and admonish one another in order that we might have success in a life, living a life worthy of the gospel. Unity matters. It matters so much that Paul places a premium on it and says, if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, you have to be unified. And that's his second admonishment, which leads us to our final one, the third admonishment. Paul basically tells us, listen, a life worthy of the gospel has a fearlessness that's born outside of himself. A life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel has a fearlessness that's born outside of himself. Listen to what verse 28 says. And not, well, let me back up. It says uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. By your opponents, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. A life worthy of the gospel has a fearlessness born outside of himself. This is a call to Christian courage, but contrarywise, Fear is the antithesis of the gospel. This is, this is what this is getting at here. The gospel promotes courage. The gospel endorses and encourages and promotes and even ensures, I would say, courage. Because the gospel comes with it, all of its realities, all of its promises, all of its hopes, all of its guarantees and certainties, and says, you have All of this is a great hope for you. You have an advocate. You have Christ. You have the hope of eternal life. You have been given a spirit of of not of fear, but of power and of love and of disciplines. You are co-heir with Christ. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. The gospel makes all these promises and gives us no reason to proceed with fear. So you see why fear is the antithesis of the gospel. Fear says, I'll be all alone. And the gospel says, do not fear, I am with you. Fear says, it's too much to carry. And the gospel says, cast your cares upon Christ. Fear says, I don't know what's coming. But the gospel says, do not worry what a day may bring. Fear says, I make so many mistakes. And the gospel says, we were chosen holy to be holy and blameless. And fear says, my enemies and camp around me, but the gospel says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
there is a danger in having a deep-seated fear in the heart of a believer. Fear misinforms and distorts reality. It suggests that God is not with you when the scripture says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, Joshua 1.9. Fear misinforms and distorts your reality. It takes, it, takes, it, it, it takes what should be reality and flips it on its head and confuses you and takes you out of where you need to be. But fear also does this. It competes against and labors to replace love. Fear competes against and labors to replace love. Listen to 1 John four eighteen. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear, or I'm sorry, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So this is again why fear is anti-gospel because perfect love is that gospel love, is what was applied to you in the atonement of Christ, in the, in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. There's this love of perfection that has been lavished onto us so that we stand presentable before God in Jesus so there can be no place for fear because what fear does, it's competing. It's competing with love and it's seeking to replace love. And the, and the two cannot coexist. Fear also robs you of peace. And John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Fear robs you of peace. but Jesus gave us peace. Not just any peace, he gave us his peace. And he only gives his peace to those to whom he's given his gospel or to those who have been affected by his gospel. So fear and peace are not good bedfellows. They cannot coexist. This is why Paul says, be courageous, against your opponents. Don't have fear because fear robs you of peace. A life worthy of the gospel has a fearlessness born outside of himself and that's important because it's the gospel that ensures and encourages this fearlessness. Otherwise, otherwise I, would, I would be given to timidity. I would be given to fear and cowardice. But by the gospel and by the realities and the promises of that, Fear is eradicated. Now, of course, I'm not saying we, 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 let me be very clear. We get afraid of things. If your house is being broken into in the middle of the night, yeah. I'm not saying, oh, don't, don't be afraid. If you're afraid of that, if you're not a little nervous about that happening, then you're not in Christ. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not, I don't mean that. So please don't take it that way. I'm talking about a fear that is so, that commandeers your life. 
that, that, that robs you of everything, that dictates everything you do. And someone who's transformed by Christ and who understands the realities and the promises and the comforts and, and the, the blessings and the gifts of the gospel and all the trappings that come with being a child of God, when you, when you start to see those things and to see who's actually for you and who's in the war and who's in the fight with you, it's hard to be as fearful. Now, we're still human. There's still that, that battle. But there's a difference in someone whose life is given over to fear and someone's life who is given over to the gospel that eradicates fear. So fear misinforms and it distorts reality. Church, fear competes against and labors to replace love. It robs you of peace. And fear misrepresents you. It just misrepresents you. If you're in Christ and you succumb to fear, understand it is misrepresenting you. It is not doing you any favor. 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 8 says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Jesus didn't give you a spirit of fear. So when what people see as a spirit of fear, it is a misrepresentation of what Jesus has given you. Therefore, it is contrary-wise to a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. So to put a bow on it, if you want to be a successful sojourner in living in a manner worthy of the gospel, it means to live with courage. Live with courage and to live with a fearness that is born outside of yourself, giving complete credit to our Lord Christ who through his atonement essentially purchased our courage. A life that is characterized by courage is a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's easy to be discouraged or shut down when we think of our own worthiness of the gospel, but there's good news, and that is that Jesus makes us worthy. Jesus makes us worthy of the gospel. None of us arrive to the doorstep of of the gospel saying, hey, I'm, I'm worthy, so will you please do something in response to my worth? No, our worth is the result of Christ's work. Our worth is Jesus himself. Courage is not how you feel. It's what you do despite how you feel. When fear cripples, when fear disables and lies to you and misrepresents you, push through it, persevere, and live with the courage that Christ has provided through the gospel. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm when the arrows come. Gird up your loins, fight, stand firm, Give yourself over to the promises and the realities of the gospel and let those realities thrust you forward into a life that is lived to the fullest and in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray.